Welcome back, Crime Historians. I'm your host, Kaylin Lois, and welcome back to a Crime Story podcast. I'm so glad to have you here today because this case is insane. I think I said at the end of the last episode, one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was because of this case. This case has taken France by storm. Everyone in France has a theory about it, and I often bring it up at parties, and I'm like, hey, what do you think about it? So I'm excited to bring this story to you and to your ears and to hear your thoughts. So just a reminder, A Crime Story Podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and YouTube. Thank you for being here today, and let's just jump into the story. Our story takes place in a small French village. It has several twists and turns, several individuals, and most significantly, a four-year-old child lost his life. Petit Gregory, or in English, Little Gregory, never got the chance to meet his three siblings, go to high school, drive a car, all of those things. He never got to go into adulthood because that was ripped away from him when he was four years old. This case gripped an entire nation and remains unsolved 36 years later. Now, let's begin with a review on France's legal system. France runs on the civil law system, which is unlike the American law system, which runs on common law. The basis of the French law stems from the Napoleon Code, which was originally drawn up in 1804. There are two branches of law in France, droit privé, private law, and droit public, public law. Uh, French courts are headed by juges, a judge or a magistrate in English, and criminal court proceedings can have a juge d'instruction, which translates to a judge of inquiry, who is in charge of investigative hearings that precede a criminal trial. A judge de instruction can decide if a criminal trial will even take place. Our crime story today takes place in Le Ponge sur Volungue, which is a small French town in the east of France. And in 2017, the population was only 805. Located between Strasbourg and Dijon, France, in reality, most French people know about this town because of this case. Volong Valley, where Le Ponge sur Volong is located, has vast hills and is quite frankly just your quintessential small French town where everyone knows everyone, everyone knows each other's business, and there's never really privacy. In 1984, Gregory, a four-year-old little boy, lived in the small town with his parents, Jean-Marie and Christine Vilma. Most of the Vilma's extended family lived in the same small town, and there was some tension in the family because they were jealous of Jean-Marie because he had recently attained a new position as foreman at his job. Jean-Marie was the boss, or in French, le chef, 
And Jean-Marie and Christine had recently built this like nice new house just right on the outskirts of town with the newest furniture and newest appliances in the home. It was really lovely. And them building this house just rubbed people the wrong way. It did not help matters that Jean-Marie would often brag about his job as the chef and his wife and his new house and his perfect little boy. He was like, hey, I have a great life and all of you are going to know about it. Jean-Marie's bravado made some enemies both inside and outside of his family. There was definite tension and jealousy among the Vilma family. While the event in question happens in 1984, one must note that the events really started to begin in 1981. Since 1981, Christine and Jean-Marie, along with family members, started receiving threatening phone calls and letters with someone who had like a hoarse voice. The phone calls were not the best quality, and when I listen to them, it's just like even hard to determine if the voice is a male or a female or even if it's like a number of people. At first, the caller would call and remain silent. You would just kind of hear like the white noise or the dial tone. And then over time, he started talking and it was becoming very malicious. They also sent letters that threatened vengeance against Jean-Marie. They eventually started calling the caller the raven. You'll also see in other English translations that they will call the caller the crow. But in the Netflix documentary, they called it the raven. So I'm just going to go with the raven. The so-called the raven knew very personal details about Jean-Marie and Christine and the rest of the family. But the main target of the Raven, however, were Jean-Marie's parents, Monique and Albert. The Raven knew extremely personal details about their life and family members' lives, and it just became quite unsettling. To this day, the identity of the Raven remains mystery, and some have speculated that it was someone inside the Villemel family possibly a female or a male or even a number of people that could have been the raven. Physical threats against the family also happened. One evening at Christine and Jean-Marie's home, the house windows mysteriously broke and the car tires were punctured while Christine and Gregory were inside. On May 17th, 1983, the letters started to threaten Gregory specifically. On Tuesday, October 16th, 1984, around 4.55 p.m., Christine leaves work and picks up Gregory from his nanny. Once they returned home, Christine puts on a cap or like a beanie on Gregory's head because it was cold outside and she sends him outside to play on a dirt mound in front of their house. And I guess being four, there's nothing cooler to play with besides dirt. She goes back inside to iron and turns up the radio to a loud volume and closes the shutters of the house in order to keep out the cold. But she said she could see Gregory through the door. 
At 5.20 p.m., she goes outside to check on Gregory, but she couldn't find him in the front yard. So, understandably, she starts freaking out and she panics and she gets into her car thinking, oh, Gregory might have just wandered down the road or something. And she drives around the neighborhood and asks everyone if they've seen little Gregory and no one had. She then proceeded to drive to her nanny's house thinking, oh, maybe, like, I I really didn't pick him up. I just imagined it or something. Or maybe Gregory did wander all the way back to his nanny's. But his nanny, like the neighbors, had also not seen Gregory. And around the same time, a letter was posted at the local post office that demanded and detailed Gregory's killing. The Vilmans received the letter the following day. While Christine looked for her son, around 5.27 p.m. or 5.32 p.m., Jean-Marie's brother, Michel Villemont, um, if that is translated to English, it is Michael Villemont, but I'll go with the French pronunciation, received a phone call from the raven who said, I have taken the boy of the chef. I have thrown him into the Volong, which is a river. Some doubt whether this phone call with Michelle even happened or not, but at any rate, Michelle alerted the rest of the Vilmont family about the call. Around 5.50 p.m., the family alerts the police about missing Gregory. That evening, the police and the family searched the woods behind the house as well as the river to look for Gregory. At 9.15 p.m., authorities found the body of little Gregory pressed against a dam along the Volong River in the town of Dossel, which is seven kilometers downstream from the town that they lived in, Leponge. Rope bound his hands on his stomach, and authorities also found rope around his neck and feet, almost like he was hogtied, but in the front. The autopsies showed no signs of violence, no bruising, even by the cords, which says to me that the cords were wrapped after his death. And there was also foaming saliva covering his mouth and nose. And his lungs also had only a small amount of water in them. Nevertheless, the medical examiner determined that drowning was the cause of Gregory's death and that homicide was the manner of death. Now, I'm no scientist, I'm no coroner, I'm no medical examiner, but I think that when you drown, your entire lungs are filled with water. I could be wrong, but I'm making a very educated guess here. So I don't understand how little Gregory, who only had a very small amount of water in his lungs, died from drowning. Anyway... A famous heartbreaking photo of authorities pulling Gregory out of the river exists. Taken by a freelance journalist, the picture was published in newspapers across the nation the next day. This picture understandably upset the French public. And the media, however, had a huge case to report and hundreds of reporters ascended upon the small town. The letter that the Raven had posted the day of Gregory's murder arrived to Jean-Marie the next day, which read, I hope you will die of grief, the chief. It is not your money that can give you back your son. This is your revenge, poor asshole. 
The judge, the instruction, gets named on October 17th, 1984. And remember, the judge, the instruction, conducts investigative hearings that precede a criminal trial, as well as even decide if a criminal trial will even take place. Jean-Michel Lambert, a young 32-year-old, inexperienced, and naive man, was named the judge de instruction. The media even called Judge Lambert Le Petit Juge, or in English, the small judge, which kind of played on Petit Gregory, Le Petit Juge. Anyway, there's a lot of petite people in this case. The crazy thing about Judge Lambert is that he could not shut up. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. He told everything he knew to the media in press conferences. And now, the reason that police keep back information is first not to hurt a criminal trial if it should take place. And also, there are only details that the killer will know. And so, these details get leaked out to the media. It can harm in interrogations and questioning when the killer can accidentally slip up and release something that only him or the police investigating the case would know. Anyway, Judge Lambert, however, basked in the glory of his 15 minutes of fame that came from these daily press conferences. And the details released both hurt the family involved as well as potential prosecution of the case. Judge Lambert mishandled this case from the onset. And in my opinion, like I said earlier, the cause of death seems odd. And I'm not the only one who thought this because the autopsy has been described as incomplete and sloppy. So the judge was bad. The coroner was bad. Like this case and the lack of experience of the judge on how to handle the case and just the sloppy investigation took France by storm. Authorities, however, did not have a lack of clues to run down, and they chased down several rabbit holes. Not uncommon a case that is getting lots of press attention. One of the first clues saw investigators find traces of tire marks and an imprint of a woman's shoe on the edge of the Volong River. Investigators also found an empty vial of insulin and a hypodermic needle by the river. Related to the crime? Perhaps, maybe. Investigators subjected members of the Vilmont family to handwriting and voice tests to try to determine the identity of the raven. An expert created a composite sketch of the man believed to have mailed the letter on the night of the murder. Described to be around 40 years old, heavy built, and wearing glasses with long brown hair. But the identification of this man later turned out to be the guy who owned the cafe next door to the post office. Investigators also conducted a crime reconstruction using a mannequin and that's when they determined that the most likely place that the murderer threw Gregory into the river came from an area behind the fire station in Dossel. A Parisian handwriting expert determined that Bernard Laroche was the raven. Now, Bernard Laroche was a cousin of Jean-Marie's, Gregory's father, 
But Jean-Marie and Bernard grew up more like brothers opposed to cousins because they lived in the same home. Authorities arrested Bernard along with his wife, Marie Ange, but released both of them the next day after their alibis checked out. But I did find that Marie Ange had failed to show up to her job the day of the murder and the day after. Marie Ange also started to show a unhealthy obsession into the case and the investigation. Now, this always sends up a red alert to police because people will try to insert themselves into an investigation to see like what the police or what the judges know and if they're closing in on them. So it always just raises a light bulb to investigators. It's also worth noting that Bernard and Marie Ange had a four-year-old son, Sebastian, who was only about 10 days younger than little Gregory. But Sebastian um, is reported in some articles as being like special needs, but in fact, he just needed constant care because he had like a cyst on his brain that required a permanent drain to release the fluids. Frustrated by the lack of progress, Jean-Marie and Christine Vilma hired a top-notch French lawyer and took legal action to gain access to the file about the investigation. The case, however, would soon pick up steam. Authorities, when investigating Bernard and Marie-Ange LaRoche, learned about Marie-Ange's 15-year-old sister, Muriel Bull, a redhead who was noted as having low intelligence and craving attention. Muriel lived with her sister, brother-in-law, nephew, and mother. Muriel would soon become a pivotal character in our story. She told police on the day of Gregory's murder, Bernard picked her up from the school a bit early, then drove to Jean-Marie's house where Bernard picked up Gregory and they drove to the Volong River. Gregory was known to be a very shy and timid boy, so his parents as well as investigators speculated that Gregory was taken by someone he knew. After Muriel told this story to Judge Lambert, Bernard was again arrested and Lambert claims that the case is solved. And the press filmed the arrest of Bernard LaRoche. And for my American listeners here, this is like a big no-no, huge faux pas here in France. In fact, it is illegal to take pictures of a suspect and handcuffs before they are convicted here in France in order not to persuade public opinion about the suspect. The media, however, could not be stopped, and the newspapers all over France published the headline, La Roche Murderer. The motive for La Roche? Jealousy. Authorities theorized that Bernard was jealous of Jean-Marie's job, his house, his money, his wife, and his son. Open and shut case, right? Well, it wouldn't be our crime story if it was. Marielle goes back on her statement, stating that the police coerced and pushed the statement out of her. 
But Judge Lambert dismissed this claim and stuck with the claim that Bernard had killed Petit Gregory. Muriel went on to state that Bernard did not even pick her up from school, but instead that she had taken the bus home on the day of the murder, which she normally did. But when she described the wrong bus driver and the real bus driver insisted along with her friends um, that Muriel did not ride the bus home that day. After authorities released her, Muriel returned home to where her sister waited. Yes, you heard that correctly. Muriel went home to the wife of the man who she just accused of murder. Like, no wonder she went back on her statement. Judge Lambert took no precaution on isolating her from her family. But then Marielle flip-flopped again and stuck to her first version of the story, but then she went back on that statement again. I know it's confusing. But she told the media, My brother-in-law, he is innocent. It was a trap and I fell into it. Five hours, I was on the bus. I was afraid of the police. They took advantage of me being alone. My brother-in-law, he is innocent. The police told me that Bernard had said that and that if I didn't say that, they would have put me in a reformatory, end quote. If this case had not already taken enough turns, the next one really comes out of left field. Three different people reported to police that they saw Christine driving into town on the day of the murder around 5 p.m. and that she had even gone to the post office. Christine became the new suspect and writing experts even determined that the Raven's handwriting had a 80% match to that of Christine's. The police interrogated Christine for nine hours and Christine, now pregnant with their second child, becomes so stressed from the investigation that she collapses and she spends several weeks in the hospital. Not listening to the advice from the prosecutor with a new prime suspect, Judge Lambert releases Bernard from prison, but he did not drop the charges. The media was nuts about this case and even hid in LaRoche's house to record conversations. As well as I think they hid either like a tape recorder or a reporter themselves hid in the Vilmont's house to record conversations. Another journalist somehow managed to get a hold of Muriel's confession and played the tape to Gregory's father, Jean-Marie. On February 4th, 1985, Jean-Marie loses it and he decides to become judge, jury, and executioner. He grabs his hunting rifle and confronts Bernard outside of his work, shoots him in the chest, and kills him. Bernard's last words, I didn't kill your kid. The police arrest Jean-Marie and in 1993, Jean-Marie received a sentence of five years in prison with one year suspended. Due to time served, Jean-Marie becomes a free man only two weeks after the verdict was read. Now, remember the tire marks and the shoe prints down by the river? Investigators match them to Christine. Based on this information, the police search the Vilma's house. The police find rope matching the rope that had bound Gregory's dead body when he was found. The situation was not looking good for Christine. 
Was she the raven and did she murder her own four-year-old child? The police arrest and charge her. While in jail awaiting trial and six months pregnant, she and her also jailed husband Jean-Marie go on a hunger strike. Not foregoing food for too long, Christine gives birth on September 30th, 1985 to a son named Julien, or in English, Julian. Christine, however, is soon released after the appeals court cited flimsy evidence. Public opinion ebbed and flowed, and French President François Hollande fired Judge Lambert from the case due to various, like many, many, many violations of procedural rules and names Marie Simon as the replacement. Now, Marie Simon was older and he had much more experience. Soon as he got on the case, Judge Simon reconstructed Christine's timeline of the day of Gregory's murder, and he determined that the timeline did not match the evidence and she could have in no way have murdered her son. In 1993, French courts fully exonerated Christine and awarded her compensation for unlawful arrest. Many believe that this case is even cursed because shortly after the reconstruction of Christine's timeline, Judge Marie Simon fell into a coma and died. And in 2017, Judge Jean-Michel Lambert committed suicide. In November 1999, Jean-Marie and Christine asked authorities to reopen the investigation to conduct DNA analysis. Authorities tested a stamp that the raven had likely licked, but the test proved to be unsuccessful. But I would think that they should retest that because DNA has come so far from 1999-2000 that hopefully there's still DNA left. In 2002, a court in Versailles ordered the state to pay damages to Marie-Ange Laroche and Muriel Bull. Courts also awarded compensation to Jean-Marie and Christine Vilma for gross negligence of the case. In 2009, authorities tested more DNA to no avail. In 2017, police arrested Gregory's great-uncle and aunt, as well as another aunt, based on new evidence. However, I was unable to find what this new evidence really was. And the great aunt and uncle remained silent and the other aunt was soon released. Muriel Bull was also arrested in 2017 and held for 36 days before being released. In 2018, Muriel Bull released a book where she maintains her and her brother-in-law Bernard's innocence. Even though from these recent arrests and releases of the four people due to procedural reasons, the case still remains open to this day. Today, what exactly happened to Petit Gregory is unknown. Jean-Marie and Christine have for the most part stayed out of the public eye, and they live in a suburb of Paris and have three living children, Julien, Emeline, and Simon. They are still hopeful about finding Gregory's killer, and in fact, they urged authorities to reopen the case numerous times. And in 2004, Petit Gregory's body was exhumed from the church in Le Pont-Sauvolong, and he was cremated 
where his ashes are remain unknown. Muriel Bull still lives in the valley of Volong to this day. So, what happened to little Gregory? The French police recently admitted that Bernard Laroche was most likely the culprit. Now, remember that anti-insulin vial and hypodermic needle found near the river? Now, Muriel's mom was a diabetic, and it is known that Bernard and Marie-Ange took care of her and checked in on her. So, a theory that is proceeded in the French media is that Gregory could have died of a possible insulin overdose and then he was thrown into the river. Or it could have just been that Marie-Ange or Bernard or even his mother were near the site where Gregory was thrown in, therefore implicating them in the murder. Most believe that someone within the family killed Gregory, but no one wants to talk about it 36 years later. This case has haunted France and turned an international spotlight on a little sleepy town. Others think that Marie Ange or even another one of Jean-Marie's brothers, Michel, was guilty. Honestly, I don't know what to believe. Normally, I have a pretty good theory on what happens in murder cases, but this one has me stumped. I definitely think someone within the family had something to do with it, but who? If I had to guess, I would say that Marie-Ange is the culprit and that Bernard took the fall for her, but of course, I could be wrong. This case serves as a cautionary tale on why we should no longer let four-year-olds play outside even in what is a small, sleepy town. This case also shows why authorities should not give out information. The public had an insatiable desire to know what was going on. However, Judge Lambert's loose lips muddied the waters so much that it likely allowed a 15-year-old child to have enough information to stir the case in a certain direction a direction that ended in the death of Bernard. The authorities have moral blame here to take as well. First, they should have never released the information, and they should have never released Bernard from prison. The waters, in my opinion, from this case have been muddied so badly that I doubt that there will ever be justice for little Gregory. Now, I want to hear your thoughts on this case. What do you think happened to little Gregory? Who do you think killed him? And what do you think about the insulin bottle? Please share your thoughts. I also hope that this episode spurs you to seek out more information about this case. And there's actually a really good documentary on Netflix, which I had mentioned before, titled Who Killed Little Gregory? It, it was done in French, but it has been dubbed in English. And y'all, it is amazing, amazing, amazing. This concludes the fifth episode of A Crime Story. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's case. You can comment on A Crime Story's Instagram at A Crime Story Pod or on Twitter under the same handle. I will also be posting images of today's story on my Instagram. Or you can comment on a Crime Story podcast on Facebook. You can also see additional photos 
of the case and listen to the case on a crime story podcast on YouTube. I have also started a website, a crimestorypodcast.com, where you can listen to the podcast as well as read a transcript of today's story. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please leave a review, it helps others find the podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you can also tell a friend about a crime story, I would be so grateful. I hope you tune in for an episode next week where I will be talking about a case from Vatican City. You won't want to miss it. A Crime Story is written and hosted by me, Kaylin Lois. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show's notes. Music is by Ross Budgen, and additional story editing is brought to you by my father, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to A Crime Story. I will see you next week, Crime Storians. Remember to stay safe and be kind. Also, for my American listeners, happy 4th of July. I will actually be in America um, on 4th of July, so I'm so excited to be able to celebrate with you. I hope you have a great holiday weekend, and happy Independence Day. (laughs) 